Welcome to Fishery, your source for fish and aquarium history. Today's sponsor is ShrimpEnvy.com. Shrimp Envy is a wonderful handmade organic shrimp food line. You can find it at ShrimpEnvy.com and use promo code FISHTORY at checkout, F-I-S-T-O-R-Y, at checkout for 10% off of your entire purchase at ShrimpEnvy.com. Check it out, 100% all-natural food, using ingredients such as stinging nettle, mulberry leaves, spirulina, kale, spinach, and much more. Check out your complete line of food, Shrimp Envy. It's only natural. Hello, my friends. It's Alexander Williamson here with the secret history living in your aquarium. So today we want to do a different episode. We're going to do an episode uh, where I am telling you a very, very large story. And I'm sure I'll be leaving parts out, might be getting parts wrong. But in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I wanted to talk about where we came from as a species, humans. And some new research that recently came out that talks about just how intertwined we have been with fish as a species for up to a million years or more, if not way more. And as an aquarist, I know that a lot of you may be interested in this sort of thing, but it's not necessarily a video about keeping fish in any um, tangible way. It's a video about our relationship with fish, how fish have been a part of us and have literally helped allow us to become human. They are the protein, they are the extra calories, uh, they are the cooked food that allowed humans to get omega fatty acids and high dense caloric proteins, vitamins, and nutrients to grow big brains, to walk upright, and to come forth into what is today. So in the spirit of the spirit of Thanksgiving, uh, we won't go into any controversies about that holiday, but in the thought of gathering around and eating and uh, being with friends, family, and people from our species, people from uh, Homo sapien, people from all over the world, different races, cultures, genders, whatever. Uh, I wanted to tell you guys a story, and it's all based on research, but I want to tell it in a way that's quick enough. Uh, it'll still be a very deep dive, but it's quick enough that... I'm not going to go down all the rabbit trails. If you guys are interested in any particular part of this, we can come back and revisit it, or maybe there's material out there I can refer you to, but we are going to go all the way back several million years, maybe more, to when humans were first becoming human. And uh, before we had luxuries of things like clothing to keep us warm, things like shelter, fire and talking about how fire and cooking food specifically fish now appears to play a large role in our speciation of the world so we're going to go back we're going to look at some images that are going to show you some amazing things some things you may not quite believe for instance have primates like orangutans have they entered the stone age now 
by simply watching us and learning from us have chimpanzees and gorillas also entered some sort of stone age. Uh, they're actually valid questions we're wrestling with. They're not ancient aliens on the History Channel type material. They are actual anthropological questions that we are trying to understand. And let's go back to why this recent publication and find in Israel that we're going to talk about that dates us back nearly a million years to purposefully cooking food. And we're going to talk about the science of how they know that this meant we were cooking food and that it was fish and that we were there and it was humans and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also want to talk about how we came forward all the way to the ancient age. So this is not history. This is prehistory. We are going to be talking about before it was written down. And much of that has been erased because it's made out of wood, stone, bones, and fibers from plants. Uh, but with new technology, new dating technology, and new uh, chemical analysis technology, we are finding out more than we've ever known about what it is to be human. And I want to take you guys on a journey about that. So let's start off right now, and I want to show you guys just how special it is to be human and how many other hominids failed for us to succeed. And the fact that Neanderthal and Denisovans and maybe a few others may also be part of who we are genetically. In fact, we know for a fact that Denisovans and, and uh, Neanderthals are a part of anybody who left Africa uh, around 200,000 years ago. And so we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about these findings that are 790,000 years old, almost a million years old, that totally change everything we know about human development, homo sapien development, hominid development, and then we're going to go forward and talk about some fishing practices, fish keeping, and horticulture or aquaculture practices that spread around the world. And we're talking all pretty much pre five to 10,000 years ago. So pre what you would think of as organized society, probably. So I hope you guys enjoy this video and I hope we can kind of loosely talk about it, skip over things. I'm not going to cover a million years in detail, but with my background as an archeologist, I find it so fascinating how we evolved from creatures, you know, single cell, wherever you want to start, but onto creatures in the sea, creatures with lungs, creatures with blood that carries oxygen, all this genetic material that we still save our eyes, how they work and our brainstem and our limbic system, how that is all connected to how we evolved from fish. There's a book called your inner fish that actually talks about all the ways in which we have kept the parts of our evolutionary history that fish developed, or at least their common ancestors to be more accurate. And so in this, uh, you're going to have to set aside any thoughts of the earth being 6,000 years old. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not trying to debate that, but let's just say it's in a timeline, uh, that 
everyone in science agrees on, and uh, you can have your timeline, but this is what the hard evidence shows, and I'm not trying to argue, and that's the end of that. Uh, so, let's talk about it. Let's talk about how we are part of these creatures, or they are part of us, and how we now master them and control them and keep them, and how that happened and how closely related they are to us being who we are physically, psychologically, culturally, emotionally, and spiritually. So let's talk about it. Let's take a look at how humans became humans and started interacting with fish. Okay, so if we go back in time all the way to when we had a common ancestor with the fish in the sea, uh, something living not quite on land, you can see that is a long time ago. That's through a lot of different body permutations. Here is a chart showing kind of your classical evolution, going from uh, your single tiniest cells all the way up through the kind of Darwinian chimpanzee through caveman to modern human look and all the mammals and everything in between. So if we look back, that is something like 400 to 500 million years ago that we are sea dwelling creatures. Yet when we look at this fact here, it reminds us how tied life is. And when something works, it really works and it stays in a species. So this says 70% of the same genes in zebrafish are in humans and 84% of the genes uh, that humans have to be known associates of disease are the same in the zebrafish or zebra danio. So I just want that to sink in, that that is why we still do scientific studies with zebra danios, because there is such, you know, a similarity. Now, genetically speaking, yes, we are similar to all life on Earth. We're like 30% the same as a banana or whatnot. So that may not be the most amazing fact that we're 70% the same as fish, but I just want to bring it home that we have gone through these evolutionary changes like gaining eyesight, like having pigment, like understanding needing a mate and, uh, you know, hunting and gathering behavior, searching for food, taking care of young, all the things we see in fish, it's not like they stopped evolving, but we have these common genes of the way life forms work. And, you know, just like our cells grow old and die, theirs do. Just like, uh, you know, the eyesight of a human works, uh, there are very similar um, ways in which the eyes of fish work. Now, other evolutionary things have happened since then. And let's just kind of fast forward and say that 370 million years ago, amphibians start. 320 million years ago, reptiles with four, um, f with four limbs are out of the water and doing their thing. 
And by 160 million years ago, uh, this is, uh, you know, dinosaur era, the, we start seeing simple mammals like shrews and things. And then we see the ones that are like lemurs. And, you know, maybe we go from a shrew to a rat to a raccoon to a lemur to a monkey. Monkey-like creatures and lemurs, uh, if you include like Madagascar and everything, 55 million years ago is when we first see those arriving. And then it is not until literally 200,000 years ago, arguably maybe up to 800,000 years ago. It is it is up for debate when and where you want to say that we became the humans we are today. But we share those genes. We, we did have a completely separate evolution. So 30% or so of our genes are going to be different. But we still share the same, you know, need for oxygen, the same basic things uh, in a universe full of possibilities of life, 70% are still the same. Now, we're going to be talking about not just that, but the fact that we are linked to all those other late mammals, the last 6 million years or so, the homonyms come in. The hominids are human-like uh primates, essentially. So there are many, many, many dead ends in this chain. And some of them were probably nearly as advanced as us, mentally speaking. Some were better than us, uh, adapted in, uh, you know, to the cold, like Neanderthalensis. Uh, others were probably less so, like Egister. Um, Homo habilis is another one that you find in Africa and that is, uh, you know, upright and has a very, very similar skull and, and uh, just slightly smaller brain size than ours. And, and we're talking two million years ago. So really, most of the action we're going to be talking about that that is this discovery, that is this Thanksgiving dinner discussion that I want to give you guys to have is going on in the last few million years in our branch of the hominins. And the hominins, we're, we're talking about Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, uh, and Homo sapiens, that's us, Homo neanderthals, Homo denosivens, which are not on this chart here, but, you know, if you're listening, um, I'm trying to narrate this so you can just listen without looking, but there's a wing of this chart. And below, I mean, you have to go back six to eight million years before we branch off to even a common ancestor with a bonobo or a chimpanzee. And those are 98.9% the same as us genetically. So really, we're talking about Neanderthal and Heidelbergensis, Homo sapien, Homo erectus, uh, all of us are going to be something like 99.5 or 99.8% similar, yet most of these species died out. Now, the, the important part is to mention that at the time of the findings that we just recently found in the last million years, which on the chart, if you're watching, at the one here to the zero, we have Homo erectus, dying out probably by 500,000 years ago, somewhere in there. 
but really we have Heidelbergensis, Homo sapiens, uh, Homo neanderthalus, and Homo um, uh, denisovan that are probably at some point interbreeding. Now, if you want to think of gorillas as being great apes and, you know, even relatives of ours, you have to go all the way back to something like 10 or 11 million years ago uh, before we shared a common ancestor. So we really are fairly different from them, even though a lot of times people like to point out how similar we are. But why are we doing all this background? Because of this. This is the essence of what it is to be human, to think. And if you look at the brain, uh, self-awareness, and if you look at the brain at the top there, that is Neanderthalus and that is Homo sapien. And uh, Homo neanderthalensis or Neanderthalus, uh, that is, you know, kind of typically, historically was seen as kind of this brutish caveman with a big brow. But it turns out that they actually had brains, in some cases, larger than ours, and were probably more advanced in their stone tool making than us. And now it turns out that everybody who left Africa somewhere around 200,000 years ago, give or take, uh, probably has some Neanderthal. And if they went west, they have Neanderthal and Homo sapien, which is us currently. And if they went east, they have Neanderthal and they have Denisovan, if not, maybe a few others. Uh, we just don't know for sure the DNA on the others. It's too old to know yet. Hopefully we'll have that technology soon. But what I want to point out is that, you know, from 3 million years ago, uh, the average brain of our other hominin uh, ancestors, they were around 500 cubic centimeters of tissue. Uh, by 2 million years ago, we're talking about maybe 600 to 800 uh, cubic uh, centimeters of tissue, like uh, Homo habilis. Homo egaster, kind of we start seeing a change around 1.9 million years ago. And that is when our first interaction with fish is archaeologically proven. So we recently, is in the last 10 years, have found an, a site in modern-day uh, modern Kenya. And so just for an idea of where all this is happening, let's zoom in. Uh, ironically, Kenya is also a source of a lot of where, you know, fish lovers, where we get fish from the Rift Lakes and from Lake Victoria and from uh, all these lakes that are in the Rift area, uh, Uganda and uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Democratic being a joke, uh, you know, and uh, Kenya, um, South Sudan, some of the rivers up in here, and the Congo, you know, we have all those beautiful cichlids and things, and here's Lake Victoria, Lake Tanganyika up in here, uh, and, and uh, or rather uh, here, sorry guys, and then uh, Lake Malawi, uh, being the the one right down in here. So, just for reference, since we were all fish nerds, I figured we should uh, take a look at the map. Well, here, if you're looking at 
this part of the world, this is where we think that all those human-like or hominid standing up, uh, starting to get bigger brain creatures, they developed probably somewhere in this area, somewhere between Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, South Sudan, uh, somewhere in here probably, and it was probably pretty tropical during that time. Uh, so something happened, and we saw those brains go from 800 cc's all the way up to our modern day 1500 cc's. So they more than doubled from 3 million years ago when they were 500. In fact, they tripled in thinking capacity and size. Now that's not always equated, but they think it happens to be in, in, uh, in hominids. So what was the find that they found on the banks of a river and possible lake site in Kenya? What well, was the first aquatic meal of fish? And they found cut marks on a crocodile's foot inside of uh, bone, as well as human bone um, of a burial. And they also found uh, fossils of various uh, aquatic animals. Uh, they found bones and uh, pre-fossilized or partially fossilized uh, bits of all sorts of meat that had been cut with sharp rock tools, broken and crushed open so that the bone marrow was eaten. And in the case of fish, you know, bones don't always last, but what does usually is the enamel on the teeth of any fish that have teeth or crushing pallets. And what we found at this site was that they were using tools to debone catfish um, to totally pull apart turtles and then use the shells as their own tools or jewelry or something, and that they definitely cut the meat off of uh, crocodiles at the site because you can see the cuts in the bone left by the stone tools, uh, like cleaver marks. Now, we don't know who in our ancestral tree did this. This is, we're talking again, one point. 8 million years ago, but we already have evidence that there's fish in the diet of at least one of the hominids here. Way before fire, way before fire, but, you know, 1.8 million years ago, probably Homo erectus, we're guessing, uh, had the largest brain, and it, it began the process of getting that large brain by having access to fuel in the form of protein and calories. And this dramatic boost came in the growth of gray matter in the brain. And many anthropologists have suggested that shellfish and fish must have been on the menu um, for this to happen, for our brains and our ancestors' brains to grow. Because uh, they have those omega fatty acids. They have those uh, doco I can never say this, docosacogenoic acids and the arachidonic acids uh, and all the essential vitamins that we need for our brain to grow. Evolutionarily, the other uh, primates and things did not have these. Now, at a site in uh, Oldavia Gorge in Tanzania, 
there uh, is no evidence of our fish-eating history. But all of a sudden, 1.8 million years ago, at this site right up in here in, in Kenya, they find evidence of stone flakes and not just eating an assortment of uh, all sorts of gazelle and things as big as hippos even, where they're finding spears and um, arrow points and things like that, as well as tools like stone tools for crushing and for cutting. Uh, they, they actually found up in here 41 bones from different catfish, 15 from larger fish, and then they found cut marks on the bones of those crocodiles as well as the rendering of those turtles. No sign of fire, though. But this is what starts that big brain process that starts us standing up, looking around, and being able to process even making stone tools is probably access to the fish in these waterways. So we are mentally, physically... We are made of fish, and we are programmed to think of fish, to seek out fish, to harvest fish. For the last two million years, we can prove this now. It could be longer, but at least two million years this has been going on. So that find is important, but an even more amazing find happened recently, and that's what really brought up this whole discussion that I want to, you know, talk about and why we're doing this episode today. So first we have to do a little bit of backtracking, and that is talking about how hominid species uh, spread. You can say hominid or hominin, uh, however you like, but 800,000 years ago is when we know that some primate-related creature, like a homo sapien or a homo erectus, uh, left Africa. And this is where we find things like Peking Man and Lantian Man and Yautin Man. Uh, you know, this we can see all the way down to Java, current day Indonesia. This is 800,000 years ago. We know from the tip of Indonesia up into basically modern day Russia and all of uh, China, through India, down through the Middle East, of course. Uh, you know, through the Levant and uh, Egypt, the, that rich, fertile area uh, that throughout time has been either hostile or uh, very homey towards humans. It's either been a desert or it's been, you know, kind of a tropical or semi-tropical region, pretty much most of human history. Now, Europe was cut off by a lot of ice ages later on, but before this, we know that there were other uh, homo ancestors that uh, died out and uh, definitely don't have any lineage because uh, their, their DNA and their forms are just not found in the fossil record ever again. And th those are in, in Spain and uh, up in modern-day uh, kind of Denmark area. Now, also out in Morocco... Um, the, the northern Sahara, in fact, was pretty tropical and full of lakes and kind of a series of oasises, oases, uh, rather than a, just a completely desolate uh, desert. And we're only now realizing to what degree that is. But let's keep moving on. I just wanted to show you guys that 
humans were not the first uh, complex primate or hominid out of Africa. So it could be when we find evidence of fish being eaten in a bunch of bones discarded together of, say, carp, it may be that something else did it. I mean, it could be a cat, right? But if there's stone tools, it's probably going to be a human ancestor. And uh, those stone tools are key at all these sites into helping us date which creature it is. Um, you know, the more important thing that we want to talk about is when did humans really first leave? What's going on there? So really around 200,000 years ago. So we ate all that fish and all those fats on all those rivers and lakes. We probably ate so many cichlids and Nile tilapia and all sorts of stuff out of the Congo River and, you know, any water source we could. Uh, also, we spread down into South Africa, and we know for a fact that in South Africa, there are also places where human ancestors collected tons and tons of seashells. Now, uh, we assume they were eating them, but we don't know for sure uh, early on talking 2 million years ago. But right around that same 1.8 to 2.2 million years ago, we know that our ancestors, our common ancestor of the hominids, uh, somebody was collecting this rich protein source and was that allowed us to then develop more brain tissue. Now, some of those, like I said, died out. There was a giant uh, species of hominids. There were smaller ones. Uh, there were probably hairy ones. There were probably less hairy ones. I mean, the the amount of relatives we have, if you ever go to the Smithsonian, you'll see they have this wall of skulls and bones, and it is literally like 150 different variants that look like more human than a chimpanzee, but not quite human, but just all these variations. So what we're talking about now is when humans took over. So humans come out, and we don't know very well yet. In fact, this is all new since I was an archaeologist in grad school, but somewhere between 200,000, maybe 400,000, 500,000 years ago, our our common ancestors, like Neanderthals, came out of Africa, and it was in several waves, most likely, that our precursor species uh, came out. Now, genetically, we've proven that everybody who left Africa after around 70,000 years ago has somewhere between like half a percent and 6% Neanderthal DNA in them. If they went into Europe, uh, humans later on, which is like 45,000 years ago is the first humans, they enter uh, bred with Neanderthals. And Neanderthals had more complex stone tools than we did. They had more variation and they worked bigger pieces of stone and were able to definitely pull out traits in the stone that they really would have had to think about several stages ahead, use antlers to work on, uh, leather, more flint napping uh, that we see later in humans uh, was going on earlier in Neanderthals. And so it may have been them teaching us how to fish. We don't know exactly. But you can see this trajectory follows the Mediterranean perfectly as they leave up into Europe. 
As they leave out of Africa, it follows the waterline almost perfectly across uh, through the, the Arabian Peninsula, then up into Iraq, over in Iran, uh, Pakistan, uh, India, and you know we get there. There are kind of trace groups that work their way up into, say, Afghanistan and the Central Asia, but most of them are headed along the coast, and so. 50,000 could be as much as 80,000, according to some uh, some archaeologists and some anthropologists. Years ago, humans get to Australia, but we know for a fact that by 50,000 years ago, they were in Australia. So they made a lot of ground where we didn't leave Africa for all those years, for 2 million years of, of hominid history. Three million, if you count, before our brains started to grow significantly. But as modern humans that you'd recognize today as, hey, that is a human, um, they were leaving Africa by 70,000 years ago to 50,000 years ago. And that's we know this because of a bottleneck. They could have left even earlier, and now some findings in Israel are really throwing all of this into contention. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, because that's what rewrites history for all of this and just came out this week in 2022 uh, in some journals in Israel as well as the Journal of uh, Nature and Ecology. So uh, then you see the speciations of uh, North America and the Pacific and everything. But I mean, we see people going up into China and uh, probably Japan through connecting islands as well as down into Papua New Guinea and places. That's happening 50,000, 45,000 years ago. And we know for a fact that 40,000 years ago, uh, we have a skull and we also have fishing tools like harpoons and uh serrated, uh, basically wood that had pieces of sharpened shells that were um, able to uh, stick fish on them. So basically harpoons for fishing, as well as nets. We know 40,000 years ago, humans were doing that up in the China region. Now we'll talk about China again soon. We're going to be going through this whole history, obviously. But I do want to bring us up to when we started keeping fish in pens for sure all around the world. But it's obvious that humans either ate shellfish or fish on these journeys. The only places they spread quickly seem to follow that pattern. Uh, it seems to take longer, even within Africa, for them to get to, for instance, Western Africa and then make it along the shores of Western Africa. Uh, then you see progress of speciation and population all uh, occurring all down the coastline. And lots of trial and error evolutionarily of, of uh, our ancestors who didn't quite make the cut. Now, Neanderthals, they left earlier than us, we think. And they probably lived in Europe and were probably able to tolerate the cold a little bit better than us. They probably lived in Central Asia and all over the Middle East before we did. And we find their culture in the form of stone tools. Now, we know that they ate fish as well. So when we look back at, at creatures that we would call human, there's the Denisovans and the Neanderthals. Now, we don't, it depends on who you ask whether that's human, but Homo sapien or us, we came out of Africa 
200,000 years ago is the earliest guess, and we probably mostly came out 70,000 years ago. But we first started coming out for sure. We have fossils. We know, you know, from all over uh, the Middle East, around 200,000 years ago, there's a wave. And by 70,000 years ago, we start seeing this explosion and people moving through the Sinai Peninsula, Egypt, the desert. And we start seeing these mix of people that are Denisovan, that are, uh, we even have a body uh, over Denisovan Cave, in, which is basically right above India and Central Asia. Um, we, we have proof that Denisovan and, and Neanderthalus, that they, they were able to interbreed. And just like guppies and endlers, they had a baby and we found the body of a young girl that we were able to genetically test and her skeleton was found being half Neanderthal, half Denisovan. Now, today in our genetics, we see that Southeast Asians uh, are up to 5% Denisovan and uh, Central Asians uh, are Denisovan and Neanderthalus. And this gets kind of um, controversial because, you know, a lot of people want to say we're one species and we're actually kind of a melting pot of at least three species we can prove now. And there's still a chunk of DNA that's unclaimed that probably differentiates us even more. Now we're talking about less than 0.02% difference in humans, in all humans, but it's there and it's something that we didn't want to address after some of the really negative things that happened when people were trying to say that different races were lesser when in fact if you were going to make that argument you might be able to argue that they spent more time in the fertile areas in which our current conditions were able to uh be prolonged and uh, the, the eating of meat and hunting and gathering and things like that uh, and competition was high whereas the others that left probably faced uh, less competition now there may have been other you know um, great ape like creatures we know orangutans and other primates made it out elsewhere and also evolved elsewhere uh, in the old world specifically, no great apes made it to the new world. But again, uh, we we don't know for sure about the speciation, the speciation and the uh, population by Homo sapiens uh, of the Americas. But roughly two percent of genomes of Europeans and Asians are Neanderthal. Asians also carry the additional Denisovan DNA and up to 6% in Melanesians and Polynesians. Um, the Africans, though, are left out of it. So that kind of proves that we mixed out in Asia somewhere or the Middle East with those other humanid or hominid, but I'm saying humanish, humanid uh, groups. Now, Around this same time, this is what's crazy, is this is also when we have to distinguish what's what, who's who, and who's using what tools. We start finding tools like these 40,000-year-old fishing hooks in Asia. Some are made out of abalone shells. Some are made out of bones. Some are made out of wood. Um, and those things are all prone to breaking, rotting, and you know you don't really want to bury them or whatnot. 
you don't want to lose them if you you don't have to. So it's usually in shallow creeks or lake beds that we'll find these. They were probably in the lip of some fish and then but basically got lost. Um, but we also see stone tools and all sorts of other things evolving. So the new thing that, that uh, is taking the story in all new directions is going to come in. We're going to jump back after I tell you. Our traditional thought was that humans speciate until about 20,000 years ago. Um, sometime between 10 and 20,000 years ago, they make it to the Americas, and they have boats probably, uh, you know, about 20,000, 30,000 years ago. They probably used uh, rudimentary canoes or rafts. Um, that's being rethought as well, but we know for sure that humans are reaching, you know, island chains and places that were at least, you know, 40, 50 miles across you know we know humans were making it to australia there wasn't the land bridge straight to australia they still had to make it across the Torres strait um so it's kind of interesting uh but we assume from here out that our next contact with fish or our next big development other than spearing fish and uh things like that Early on, we know that 50,000, 100,000 years ago, we find setups like this underwater where we see two walls angled like a V and then some sort of corral or trap. Uh, and this is called a fish weir or basically a fish maze or dam. Now, some of them get really elaborate. Some are shaped in really crazy um, kind of uh, almost like a hornet trap where they enter from one side through like a really fine passageway and they have to find their way through this maze and it's kind of like a, an a inverted funnel shape uh, and other times uh, you know it's as simple as a fence that during high tide is tall enough for fish to go over and during low tide it's not and we probably rushed in with clubs and bashed the fish so we can kind of gauge when we find stone uh, arrangements, especially using um, underwater archaeology, which is a new field as well. We can kind of figure out these sites and when we can date them properly, which is a whole other video. But just trust me, um, we can date stone and we can date organic matter back uh, at least 100,000 years really well. Um, but we see these same fishing weirs, these same things being used when Europeans first made contact with Polynesians, with North Americans and South Americans. We know that they were being used in Europe in the Middle Ages and things. So, I mean, it wasn't long ago we were still using this same technology. Hey, if it works, keep doing it. But... The real controversy was, you know, was this a delicacy? Did people just kind of like fish or did we were, were fish part of our life, part of our growing as a species? We also find these traps, um, which are really easy to make. Um, I mean, obviously, someone had to invent that at some point, And it was a crazy um, jump in technology. But we see these traps all over. Uh, probably they existed sometime while humans were leaving Africa, and that is your kind of basket trap for fish. We also know that people uh, had rattles with like shells or shark teeth or bone fragments uh, loosely tied on them, and uh, that they would use those to attract fish in the water. 
And when we made it to the Solomon Islands exploring, we actually found that exact same thing going on, and it kind of confirmed some of the discoveries of these rattles and, and shells. Uh, sometimes you'd find shells in kind of a U shape, and they were, um, you know, two shells, two shells, two shells. So they're slamming against each other, and some of them had chipped, and you could tell just by looking at them, even early archaeologists knew that, you know, okay, here's a bunch of uh, decomposing brown-colored dirt or in, in a bunch of yellow dirt or clay or something. They know that that was wood or organic matter, and the shells were all that were left. And they didn't know what it was exactly, but, you know, thought maybe jewelry or something. Well, it turns out they were able to figure out that these were rattles used for music or in the case of the Solomon Islands, we were able to really document a lot of amazing stuff all the way up to the era where we still have, um, you know, film and, and photography to, to, to document this stuff. But some of the ingenious fishing methods that they were using when Europeans contacted them are probably some of the most ancient methods that are out there. So this whole idea of a fishing hook this comes way, way, way later than the corralling and beating, clubbing, or even growing of fish in ponds or or weirs. But we know by 40,000 years ago, this is when we find the first hook and line with sinkers. And these sinkers show up all over the place very quickly around 50,000 years ago. Um for sure, more like 30,000 years ago, they are everywhere humans are. So let's hop back because we need to talk about this initial uh, wave of people coming out of Africa. So we know that Homo erectus, if we look back on the map, if we look a few images back, we know Homo erectus and its relatives made it out around 800,000 years ago all the way to China. So these findings could be Homo erectus, and this is why it's so crucial what they find next at the site that hasn't been published yet. We'll have to stay tuned. But in Israel, a full 600,000 years before the flood of other humans came through, but it is very possible that humans were flirting with the idea of leaving because we do have some remains right in this area of the Sinai and Egypt and um, Somalia and Ethiopia, where there are Homo sapiens. But what they recently discovered in Israel is downright incredible, and that is they have preserved where the first documentable meal of cooked food was. So... They discovered an, a way by using the enamel in the teeth of the fish at the site in Israel. They were able to use that enamel, and even though the bones had fallen away, they were able to use strategic... Uh, so let me think of a way to put this that's um, easier to say for uh, in non-archaeology terms. But basically, we found on the Jordan River and nearby... Uh, we knew that that had been inhabited for at least a million years by our ancestors and cousins of the human race, uh, human species. However, 
Just this week, they published new findings that say that humans, or at least hominids, first mastered the rudimentary use of fire, and it was fish, yet again, that helped us solve this puzzle and that are involved in this puzzle. So they found the remains of a carp-like fish at the site of Gesher Benot Yaakov uh, in Israel, and it shows that fish were cooked roughly 780,000 years ago. So was this Homo erectus? Was this us? Was this early Neanderthals or their forerunners? We don't know. But we can prove that they were controlling the temperature and that they did not ignite the food. Rather, they heated it. And that's because of testing done in laboratories that basically shows uh, when you heat up the teeth of these carp, they've got these bony teeth for crushing. And these tar carp are not little fish. This is an ancestor of the carp that is now dead because the water has dried up or maybe because humans ate them all. Uh, but around 5,000 years ago, this carp seems to have disappeared. And they found these bony crushing uh, teeth-like structures in their throats, and those have enamel, just like our teeth have enamel. Well, that enamel can be dated, and that enamel can be drilled into, and DNA can be found in it, just like in human teeth, which is interesting for fish uh, species identification, especially because the rest of the bones usually rot away, especially on anything over 100,000 years ago. Fish are, don't have very good bone structure for fossilization. It's very rare that they last as a fossil. Now, that being said, of course, there are fish fossils. There's fossil, fossils of skin tissue even existing. It's just rare. <clears throat> the softer a substance is, uh, the more porous it is, the more likely it's not going to last. Same with, like, thread, rope, clothing. That's why we can't prove when nets, for instance, were invented. But we can prove when sinkers that are made out of stone that clearly have eye hole loops or um, notches for netting and are found in the placement where a net would have uh, naturally draped, when those are found and then a pile of fish bones are found with cut marks from stone tools, we have a pretty good idea that humans were eating fish there. Well, same thing here is they develop new uh, dating techniques and new techniques to tell how hot the enamel was. So enamel actually turns its chemical composition gradually at a predictable rate depending on how hot the fire burned it. Not only that, it also predictably changes whether oxygen and flame ignited it versus whether it was indirect heat. So we can say for a fact that those bones were cooked under the earth. We can also see fire cracked rock and we can see that according to this new paper, they're saying that it predates all the other sites we've ever found by 600,000 years. It's one 140,000 years ago is the next most recent site. So this is this massive quantum leap in technology and in science and in what humans are doing. And it shows that we may have uh, either us or our cousins, our relatives that later we speciated with 
it shows um, the work of Dr. Zohar and Dr. Prevost that we or one of our cousins was eating meat. Also, in the bones of other hominids found, found nearby, we can say that the fish remains at Gesher Beno Yaqab uh, were... That the, that the remains of humans, rather, uh, had a really high amount of fish as their main protein. We can tell that by uh, looking at teeth enamel and um, uh, bone marrow, as well as other things like uh, what the bones are made of themselves, isotopes and so forth. We can also date these sites by when pieces of basalt break. And if basalt has certain... Uh, chemicals and compounds in it, it has crystals that will align magnetically with the Earth's magnetic alignment, true north, just like if you float a piece of metal in water and it turns to the, the align with north and south. Well, little tiny microcrystals do that when you break stone, the surface layer will do that, and we can actually capture the date at which that fracture in the rock happened. Now, there's also um, there's also uh, you know uranium. There's also other isotope dating methods and things, and that's a really harsh, crude way, not totally accurate, of breaking it down really quickly for you guys. But that is to say that we just it's very well uh, proven that. It, the dating on this is very firm. Whether it was humans versus other human-related ancestors, the Denisovans, the Homo erectus, Neanderthals, that's what we're not sure of. But the fact that fish, yet again, is playing a role at this pivotal spot where we leave Africa, where we speciate the world, where our first successes are, the fact that this is found and that we can date that this is where the fish is cooked on purpose, that they had the mastery of fire, we can then easily say by 200,000 years ago when we left Africa, it, it's not a large jump at all that in 600,000 years, they were able, or rather 580,000 years, they were able to learn either from other species of uh, hominids or from ourselves doing. And shortly after we master fire, so let's let's skip back again. Uh, so we know we've got fishing equipment and all sorts of uh, weirs and uh, contraptions we use to catch fish. Well, we know that as much as two million years ago, so when our ancestors weren't even the same. Uh, species when they were different wings uh, closer to other hominids we know that somebody down there in South Africa as well as uh, several other locations in Africa was able to bring fire hundreds and hundreds of yards back into caves for thousands of years on end and uh, cut up animal bones, do paintings, do all sorts of things back there, including bury their dead. So it proves that fire was managed, at least, um, even if it was caught from f forest fires or whatnot. So we take the, the technology, the learning of using stone tools and, and using uh, rudimentary fishing things um, that were going on, and we know early on, backtracking just to, just to 
talk about how important this all was again is we know that living in this area with all these lakes and fresh water that is what we were eating uh was the that was the majority of the protein when we analyzed skeletons of hominid human humans uh homo sapiens specifically there's a few others that sometimes have high levels of these omega 3s and 6s fatty acids and other lipids and compounds uh, that are unique to um, fish. Now, omega-3s and 6s aren't, but there are specific ones that we can trace, uh, like through isotope um, testing and so forth, that we can tell, like that came from the organic iodine that's in, say, a shellfish, or that came from uh, the liver of a cod, or of a uh, a fish of some sort rather than a mammal. And uh, also by analyzing um, DNA, but only more recently can we use the DNA. So we have to use context clues in these really old sites. So if it's under, if it's over about a hundred thousand years, um, we really can't do a lot of the the same testing because all the things like fibers that they may have had or wooden spears and things that they may have had all we have left is the stone in many cases the wood and in the case of fish the bones go away but what we do find in these sites are the autoliths or the little stone it's almost like an eardrum in a fish that is like it has tree rings on it and uh, every year that that fish lives, another layer of calcium and nutrients are deposited on it. And so we'll find these little tiny bones, and that's why uh, archaeologists are always sifting through the fine, fine dirt and looking for little clues like that. Because, you know, hundreds of year, hundred years ago, we wouldn't have known what to do with that. Now we're able to see... Holy cow, there's several thousand years of people having fires, and every six inches they dig deeper into the ground, they can see that they were having fires in the same spot underneath this rocky outcropping, and they're finding the same uh, uh, fish bones as well as like gazelle that have been processed in the same way with the same uh, cut marks. Like they, they use the same type of stone, the same deposits of stone that maybe sometimes from hundreds or even thousands of miles away, they were trading for those things. So now let's, let's hop up to what we know. Uh, we know we had mastery of fire for sure. Uh, like I was saying, uh, in those sites, even if it wasn't us, it was one of our uh, past uh, common uh, ancestors. We know we had mastery of fire, but what the site in Israel shows, and again, this is a full uh, 600,000 years before most humans left this general area. We, humans kind of got to about here and then didn't seem to leave. Now, there are some really old sites right in this area, right into Jerusalem. It is interesting that so many religions and things are are, are centered around this area because it really is the big expansion point of how human species, how Homo sapiens got to the rest of the entire world. But it seems to be a big bottleneck. Um, like maybe some groups came out and then others uh, perished. You know, maybe they did, just didn't make it. Maybe there were too many successful Homo erectus and, and then uh, Neanderthals up here later on and so forth. But it shows in this site that that's one of our cousins or us was able to have the brain power because of all that protein and everything 
as early as as half a million years to a million years ago, somewhere in there, they had consistent use at this site all throughout several hundred thousand years in this area of collections of sites. They had use of cooking stones, which crack under heat and different stone cracks at different temperatures and has different um, breaking patterns. Well, we can compare that against lab testing. And then we know that stone cracked at 2000 degrees on, in a hot flame or something. Well, then we can compare that there's cracked stones that must have been really hot right next to the autolith or the earpiece of the fish or the enamel from their teeth. Now we can do DNA testing with enamel that's about, you know, I, I don't know what they're up to now, but I would safely say 40,000 years ago to, a to, to, to maybe 100,000 years ago, we get pretty good dates, usually from organic matter still, and we can see what was in it with uh, gas uh, or mass spectrometry and uh, gas chromatography, which is basically you pulverize stuff turn it into a dust and then shine light through it and every element uh, has a different frequency of light. It's how we can also see distant planets and know if there's water in their atmosphere because only certain bandwidths of light reflect back uh, from from uh, one oxygen um, and two hydrogens. Like that, that specific molecule has a light refraction window well we can do the same thing when we pulverize things into a plasma or into a dust uh, and we can analyze like what kind of food they ate and maybe there's like a unique seed or a unique um, heavy metal or something like that that's stored in their body that tells us more about it and that's how we're dating these sites but the fact that we knew um, as of 10 years ago that there were sites down in South Africa, as well as Zambia and Tanzania, that uh, we were, uh, Zambia being down here, uh, Tanzania here, um, we knew that humans, us, uh, Homo sapiens, were using fire very well by that point, and our brains were completely modern, uh, debatably, nobody debates that by 200,000 years ago they weren't, um, 400 or I mean, uh, 40,000 to 50,000 years ago, I already explained, you know, they expanded out along all these waterways around the world. And you start seeing these other time periods that pop up. So probably because 40,000 years is about the best uh, we can get these materials to last from, that's why we are seeing uh, hooks and more elaborate this material culture that, that changes from these simple hooks to the more elaborate ones like these, it's probably because of, of the fact that they're lasting just physically rather than that they existed. So they're probably older than this, but we haven't been able to prove that yet, and hopefully we will soon. Now, the next thing to talk about is when really history sort of starts and people start settling down that's a that's a full human right there in a little boat on a rice paddy and this is uh in in southern china yunnan province and you can see where there's old layers of this terrace and if you dig back in those we find evidence of all sorts of incredible things and one is that there were carp and uh 12,000 
to 10,000 years ago, they were making these rice paddies. They were farming by this point. And we can see that they had carp of all ages and a few other like minnows and things all in their rice field. And they're probably using them to eat algae and then they'd eat them too. Well, somewhere around 10,000 years ago, something changes. And all of a sudden we see one pool will have only fry or baby teeny tiny enamel bones of teeth from carp. Then the next one will have um, medium size. Then the next one will have full size and babies. And it becomes very clear that they were figuring out that they could breed them and that they were eating them when none of them are over a certain size. There's no big, great, ancient, old ones. It's very clear that they are mastering these by this point. And this this occurs all across the world. We don't exactly know when and where. Now, I have whole talks devoted to uh, this kind of being the start of fish keeping after netting fish in. But simultaneously around the world, you see fishing methods that are just insane and, and, and creative from in the Solomon Islands. To this very day, they take spider silk and they make these kites out of palm fronds and leaves and and, um, and other material barks, and they float a bait over the water. You can actually look this up. Uh, BBC did a, a filming of it uh, recently in HD and everything. Uh, but this is a Solomon Islander, and they would make these kites and they would skim with a spider web line. Uh, and at the bottom of that spider web line, there's a, uh, basically a big wad of spider web from this giant orb weaving spider that makes these six to eight foot webs. And they wrap it all up carefully in a certain way. And then when these needlefish that are like a foot and a half to, to uh, up to two feet, uh, a foot to two feet long, uh, which have mouths that are too small to bite a traditional hook. They get their little sharp needle teeth and their beak wrapped around this when they investigate it and, and, and bite the spider silk hanging down from the kite. So it's like fly fishing. And they say they've been doing that, you know, since time immemorial. You know, likewise, we also see that up, uh, up in Alaska, we see evidence of the fishing weirs, like I showed, uh, how, uh, these uh, different systems here where people are creating these fences, you can see how much would deteriorate. And when they actually went to the trouble to use rocks to create permanent versions of these, that really says something that, you know, it wasn't just passing by. This was a multi-generational probably, if not organized sedentary group. So probably this is also what helped cause humans to settle down because likewise, after we find these early hooks and uh, evidence of the, the fish in our diet skyrocketing and then us being able to cook other foods, which then gives us access to the same thing that raw fish has, some of those complex fatty acids and things, uh, we then see far more complexity in weaving and and things that are left. Um, and that is when humans are spreading all across the world pretty swiftly, 40,000 years or so, give or take. We also find some of the first pieces of art, as we consider it, uh, like stone relics of fertility things. But what's going on here in this picture is from the 18th dynasty in uh, ancient Egypt and uh, 1350 BC, so so I mean 
one uh, three thousand three hundred and fifty years ago. It's a very elaborate tile mosaic, and it shows all sorts of tilapia and ducks and. Um, there's other fish down uh, farther on, on the original, uh, if you look it up. And uh, this is showing us that they had pools, ponds. They had mastery of breeding and keeping these fish by this point. They had gardens. Uh, and, you know, just to show, I mean, literally religions and cults start forming around odd variants in the fish so maybe an albino one gets found this is another 18th dynasty shows the whole 18th dynasty was very obsessed with fish in their diet uh and very very elaborate uh you know this is uh glass by the way this is glass that it was lost how to make this type of glass this opaque glass um they probably figured it out from meteor impacts in the sahara how that would make glass or lightning can make glass um but it was lost until the Renaissance. Uh, that's, a, that's a story for another time. But, I mean, then as time goes on, all across the Mediterranean, we see people following uh, transitory fish uh, and also waiting for transitory fish to come back and come up river and things like salmon and eels and so forth. Uh, and they would wait for them, and then in the meantime, they would grow crops and things. Uh, it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, what did they do first? But now we have some really hard evidence that fish were in the diet first, that, that we transitioned to these fish-heavy diets. And here is a Greek mosaic from, actually, it's more like Minoan, uh, early, early Greek culture. And you can see there is a fly rod, basically. There is a modern looking catch net there's all sorts of different fish in in the picture there's a cast net with the weights on it the sinkers that we know we find uh, 40,000 years ago all over uh, the world pretty much wherever there are humans and then we also see uh, the the seine net that you'd stretch across a river uh, as well as kind of the permanent structure here maybe there's something going on it's hard to tell where where the creek mouth is uh so you can learn a lot from the art once humans have language and art and pictures to represent what they're up to and uh it's just amazing to think that maybe there were these humans uh 50 60,000 years ago traveling in boats now another thing is you can't just set out into the distance with a, a Adam and Eve and, and start a whole society. You need a, a special number of people, and that number is named after a certain scientist. I forget at the moment, but basically you need to have around 28 uh, to, to 32 people just so it, that aren't related so that it won't be an inbred group if you're trying to speciate, like, for instance, Australia or Hawaii. So these were probably groups of several hundred because some were related, um, inevitably, probably in a hunter and gathering group. But they would set out, and we see that the Polynesian islands uh, were were traveled, and and as early as sixty thousand years ago, people were crossing like the Torres Strait. They were crossing um, up up in by Doggerland uh, from the Netherlands across into England. That used to be walkable, actually, over to the UK, but it became an island and then it disappeared underwater and now we want to do archaeology there because we know there were neanderthals there uh as recent as probably thirty thousand years ago maybe more recent uh and it's really interesting to see 
what our close cousins that we are literally, uh, some of us are, I know I am from my genealogy, I am a 4.8% Neanderthal, no Denisovan, um, but that makes sense because I'm predominantly uh, African, North African, Middle Eastern, and, and then mostly European. Uh, and it's just really fascinating, though, how literally our being, our structural being, our muscles, our brain, the way we were able to think of the things we use to catch more fish was a feedback loop of us getting the protein to grow the brains to 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 create history as we know it and it just amazes me and it's this beautiful uh almost poetic circle now if we want to talk about things like the fish trade on the mediterranean or the azores and and giant eels being captured and kept in pens uh, the the use of for instance orcas and uh, dolphins in fishing uh, many indigenous people uh, speak of that very far back uh, and that they had these communication deals where they would give a piece of of uh, of fish over to the the uh, the large um, cetaceans or, or or basically you know whatever it may be a uh, be it a a seal or a sea lion or dolphin or or whale or orca um we've seen it in south africa we've seen it in uh the aboriginal cultures and in tasmania and south uh, australia as well as uh up in alaska and northern canada specifically with orcas alone uh, not to mention dolphins in the caribbean and in the mediterranean uh, where we would train them to herd fish for us and they too have very large brains uh, because of all those fatty acids they're getting in the water. And this connection we have with water and wood and fire and uh, fish and gathering in this obsessive, you know, I just need to collect a few more, um, storing things, uh, just kind of what it is to be human. A lot of these innate things are are all back in the DNA. I mean, they're shared. The The fact that our eyesight and everything comes back from all these simple creatures and first simple eyes and then complex ones, and if it worked, it stayed, and it gets more and more complex until we're all the way up in here. I mean, every part of the story that we're talking about today is just in the last 200,000 to 3 million years. We didn't cover more than that. We didn't even cover this picture I showed you at the beginning uh, of the chimp starting to walk and then the, the two cavemen-looking hairy guys. They're not even part of this story. This was all just this last part. And fish, very realistically, helped us get to that finish line, uh, helped us change that much more, helped us push across explore new territories, go to new bodies of land. And there's been theories on that for a long time, including some that have been debunked and things. But now it appears very realistically that there was like a kelp highway that, that, that brought humans to the new world even. Um, that that the ice-free corridor that, that you may have learned about in school, uh, that the Ice Age, well, now they know that humans were in North America before this ice age, the land bridge, before it opened up here, 
that and there wasn't much food here for them so it makes so much more sense to a lot of archaeologists and anthropologists that they would have come across these islands and this would have been a a, a shelf of land that they could have just rowed boats canoes rafts whatever it may have been and followed what would have been probably fairly temperate water here i mean we're only at the same parallel as about the uk is right here uh, so if they're not talking about crossing all the way up here, um, even if there were major glaciers, we now are thinking 20,000 years ago, maybe even older, humans were in the Americas. We, we can prove pretty much 20,000 years, give or take now, uh, and the Clovis culture and all that. Um, and then it changes. So there's probably another group that did come down through there that were closer related to uh, the genetic groups we see, the DNA of the the, the northern Russian uh, kind of um, uh, eastern Asiatics that came through and then mixed with probably the Clovis people um, who were there probably earlier. And it, it's even possible that the Polynesians made it across. We know that the Yanomama, one tribe, did test positive for DNA shared with those of uh, Easter Island, as well as some of the Pacific Islanders that, that actually island hopped all the way out here. And all it would have taken was ships chasing fish or out exploring new lands or getting kicked out due to battles or whatever it may have been, looking for fresh water when something dries up on a, on a small island. I mean, Hawaii's out here right in the middle. And it was probably one of the last colonized parts of land. And we're talking a thousand years ago, maybe 2000 um, and in waves also. So it seems to be a story of not one migration ever. It always seems to be these waves and there's probably failed ones before the successful ones also, but it's just so much of what it is to be human. And it just amazes me that this story links in so well with these these hot spots of where we cross into new lands and where new entire cultures and and as we say kind of races and continents of people crossing mountains and things we we use things like dried fish fishing lines and, and uh, jerky and uh, those things so that our brain would have the energy so so that we would grow big enough strong enough muscular enough uh, and to, to to exist, to live, to to be smart enough to to figure out that we did want to go these places and and how to catch things easier. These same areas uh, we know in Kadalhayak up up in uh, Turkey, there's some very ancient um, human settlements, twenty thousand, twenty four thousand, maybe years old. Um, that were settled. Also, we know that 20,000 years ago in Israel, yet again, on the Sea of Galilee, we find knives made out of stone that are very, very long, uh, you know, some, something like a foot long, these flint knives, and they have cereal grain uh, fat all over them. So we know that they were cutting uh, seasonally cereal because some of the knives have them and some of them don't, and you can actually find them in lake beds and things where people probably drop them. So uh, 
all that is to say that we probably started settling down right in the same areas where we started fishing, where we could build these weirs, where cultural hierarchies and, and being able to eat enough, not that you're getting by, but that you're flourishing. And that's when culture starts. So once language and writing kicks in, and they think writing very likely kicked in because it was a way to tally what was owed. Uh, some of the earliest writings are on little clay discs from this whole general area of the Middle East, but they they're of uh, you know they're they're something like twenty, well fifteen thousand years old. There's earlier symbolic writing before that, uh, but we don't know what any of it means, and it's not consistent. But we see hash marks and and dots like. 12 dots, 9 dots, 4 dots, and then a symbol, and then recurring symbols and things like that on these tokens that they would uh, actually trade and keep track of, well, that's 15 goats, or that's 20 of these, or whatever. And it's not till later we find out that that's what, what they were doing, because they wrote about it in hindsight, saying this is an ancient practice. Um, but needless to say, it, this is what then gives us a surplus this so the surplus of fish the surplus of of meat of domesticating animals and crops and uh maybe taking plants that we like and putting them seasonally around the same lake areas that we're in um whereas uh fish are more seasonal in the salt water these freshwater lakes uh, there's a new hypothesis as well that came out with this study uh, coming out of Tel Aviv where they're saying that, you know, these were basically oases. These were islands to hop out of this area into into Europe by lakes because uh, this was a route where it was stable food. And unfortunately, those fish went extinct from the study that were cooked in the ovens. Uh because they were utilized so much, but we know that there were much more. Um, there was much more water in this region, and you know, across the Sahara also. So there may have been crossings of Neanderthals uh, also this way, maybe even Homo sapiens this way at one point. Uh, but we do know they came this way, and then they go along the water. Some go along up above the Black Sea, uh, and some go clear, kind of cutting across here and following rivers, but water is key and it seems to be fresh water and maybe that's why people like me are drawn to freshwater aquariums who who knows but this excess of time because they had food accounted for allowed them to develop culture and all of this is the story of how fish helped us become the humans we are today the species that we are today and it blows my mind and i hope you guys enjoyed this story and uh will like subscribe and and uh maybe think about telling other people to check this story out if, if you think it's a good one if you're thankful for all of this and you feel instinctually drawn to to fish and fresh water and i mean salt water too but there's a definite freshwater theme of of the arteries in which societies populated every spot on the world on rivers and lakes uh, it's very amazing and, and that our species came to be in the same kind of conditions right in this region, most likely. So thank you very much, guys. And uh, we're going to wrap it up outside in just one minute. But I appreciate your time so very much. So what an amazing story. These little details, these little pieces of stone, of 
of bone, of rock. And all the science from different disciplines across all of what humanity has learned. The mere fact that we can do that is due to fish and the, the extra fatty acids and proteins and lipids that we were able to gather from eating those. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of breakdowns and, and it changes depending on the area you look at it. But as we've gotten more information, we can see that humans actually started eating in many places where we expand out of Africa or across land bridges and things. We are heavily eating these uh, marine based diets and things like kelp uh, and, and fish and uh, invertebrates and crustaceans and things that are all sea based or freshwater aquatic based. They were our first sedentary uh, and also probably one of the first things we followed too, um, coming and going from the coastline as there were things spawning and as there were fish present or salmon coming up streams or whatever it may be. This all made it possible physically for us to have brains big enough to create the culture and to want to keep these animals and to master raising these animals and literally with these artifacts and these finds and the gift that we share with these fish, 70% uh, of our DNA and a lot of our primal senses and, and you know, just basic functions as an, a living organism, uh, we share with so many things on this earth. And it's important to remember that so that we preserve it and so that we love it that much more and feel that much more connected to it. And we couldn't do any of that without the brain to process it. So that's why this is such a fascinating story and why it's been almost a gift of fish and of the, the universe and chance and or a creator that we were able to take advantage of this, then the fire and then language is kind of the last step uh, to then after this, we could start actually raising fish in captivity, spreading our knowledge amongst each other that way. And it's just an incredible story that we keep learning more and more about. If you want to hear more about this story and what happens in history, not in prehistory, before we have things written down and we are reflecting on things and continual records and so forth, when we have more than just a scattered context and material culture such as tools and things, if you want to uh, see more about like the the Chinese, for instance, or Carthage, uh, the Greeks, the Egyptians, uh, the Middle Easterns or uh, societies, uh, or uh, the Pacific Island societies, and how they corralled fish, kept fish, literally started breeding fish. I've got videos on those things too, and also I come to clubs and I do talks on those things because I think they're some of the most pivotal things about our hobby and some of the most primal things that give us this, this feeling of why so many of us feel like it just clicks, like it's a connection, like it's instinctually uh, addictive to be a part of this hobby and caring for animals and, and fish in particular too, and just in awe and calming. And you know, there's been research done that it physically calms us, physically has health benefits. And, uh, I want to thank you guys all on this day. I am so thankful for you allowing me to make this kind of content. And quite frankly, if I didn't have the time that you allow me to have, 
by watching these videos, sharing these videos, liking them, being subscribed, checking out the site every once in a while, not just when you see a video up. It's you guys doing those things uh, that really help the channel exist because these long deep dives are not made for everyone and they take months if not sometimes years for me to kind of get all these pieces from all over the place and put them together in a story uh, and then usually I'm brushing up on the story for a week or two right before an episode like this and uh, so it, it it is complex and yet I, I try to keep it casual uh, in the storytelling of it but it, it, it does require the time and energy and all that back history and it's because of you guys and those of you uh, in particular that are members a dollar ninety nine a month you guys allow me to spend my time doing this as work in a city as expensive as Seattle and if you can spare it right now and I know times are really tight and money's tough for everyone but any sort of uh, you know super thanks or like uh, that you can do on these videos if you really enjoyed this video the deep dive content um, even letting me know with a dollar or two, uh, that really helps. Or if you want to be a member, if you are a member, thank you. And if you can't afford it right now, I don't want to guilt anyone. I'm just saying uh, if, if you can and you find this resource valuable, you want those extra 20, 16 to 20 episodes a month of all the current news, research, science on what's going on in the aquarium hobby and freshwater, saltwater ecology, uh, and you like this channel, you want to see more of this type of content on YouTube, that's the way to do it, it is to allow me to keep doing it because I will keep doing it as long as I can uh, and afford to keep a roof over my head, so to speak. So thank you so very much and uh, there's plenty of follow-up videos on the history after this and the formal history of aquariums, but there's also a lot of ancient history that I go into in some of the playlists, and also if you just search, you know, Romans, Egyptians, or whatever you're curious about, and fish, uh, that'll be uh, on the channel. Check it out. Look at some of my talks that I've given to other clubs, and uh, in those, I've, I, I go over some of this earliest stuff. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for watching, and uh, fitting on this day, you know, we started in the dark, we're into the light. I'm thankful uh, for you guys uh, coming along this process and, and, and listening to this story uh, of, of us, of all of us. Uh, and I feel closer to you, even though I don't know who you are that's watching, but I feel closer to all of humanity knowing these things. So I thank you very much and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll talk to you next time. Uh, have a wonderful day. See you next video. <laughs> Bye, guys.